Topping Talks. One hundred and five hours a week can't be beat. Welcome to Topping Talks. Topping Talks is a Topping Tribune production, and today's episode is proudly sponsored by Topping Technologies and ExpressVPN. Topping Talks is also on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Topping Technologies is an IT value-added reseller and services company with a special proficiency in security. Heck, I see their founder at least twice a day. I have to say, he's quite handsome and brilliant. If you're a business in Texas and can use a hand, you can reach us at sales at toppingtechnologies.com. Also, are you part of the 3.6% of Americans who still care about their privacy? If you are, then perfect ExpressVPN can assist. Even though 96% of stats are made up on the spot, ExpressVPN does give back 100% guarantee via their 30-day back money guarantee. Now, without further ado, today I'm proud to say I'm interviewing Tony, who is the head of cloud and data center connectivity at Zurich North America. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Tony. Hey, thanks for having me, Nick. Absolutely. So I know winding back the clock a couple of years, what was your first foray, foray into IT and how did you get involved? Oh, geez. Uh, my first foray in IT uh, was probably in the late part of the 90s. I worked in music production prior to and Y2K was coming. Um, and uh, at the encouragement of my girlfriend at the time, that became my wife and now <laughs> separate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> she said, uh, hey, why don't you think about uh, a career in IT? And I was like, eh, I'm not sure about that. And uh, I just dove in and it was very similar to roles previous and uh, just applied those transferable skills and haven't looked back. And then tell me a little bit about that first role, getting into the music industry. That's that a pretty unique experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was that was super fun. Jeez, um, uh, I had kind of uh, I came from a musical family. In fact, uh, um, I've had uh, cousins that were musicians and played with bands to the like of Nine Inch Nails and oh, yeah. other artists as well. So I found myself in my sort of mid-teens, like in the middle of all of this and uh, really enjoyed more the engineering aspect of it, um, mm-hmm. specifically the recording side and, and live sound production. And um, just got real involved and educated myself in that track and did some touring early on. And really throughout the 90s, uh, that was that was my career and you know, uh, filled Passport a few times and circled the globe a few times as well. That's awesome. So how do you get that first job or the, how do you get the job at MTV? I mean, that, that was a pinnacle of music when I was a kid. I mean, that was where you went to get yeah, that good music videos. It's I iconic. know it was, that was excited. I, I was there on the production staff for the MTV music video awards and I'll date myself. Oh, wow. 1997. And I uh, was working with a few artists. It was a really exciting time. I mean, with that year Spice Girls were there, the Wallflowers and, uh, few other bands as well as uh, Puffy who was just coming on the scene at oh, wow I don't know what he goes by now if it's oh yeah <laughs> but um yeah it was super fun and, and Radio City Music Hall and the whole bit and um in my career like that was one place that I wanted to go it's just you know from a working standpoint was there uh, I had the opportunity to, to work at the Jay Leno show. Oh, wow. Um, what was that and, like? Uh, it was really cool. And, and, so, sorry, can you move this closer just a little bit for me? Oh, yeah, sure. And David Letterman. Oh, wow. Um, I didn't make Saturday Night Live, which, you know, was always a goal to at least, you know, uh, be a part of a production there. But, um, you know, just New York is such a magical place, and especially when you're there seeing production and 
That's so fun. What was it like working on the Jay Leno show? Or was it um, coordinating all the audio and the video? Or what was the whole process? No, like? it was really just, uh, it was a way back sort of beginning of my career. And I was an instrument rental runner. So, yeah. uh, you know, I would go there and pick up gear and, um, and uh, just do various technical, uh, you know, instrument-based tech stuff. And it was just super fun. I mean, you know, those shows, like, you know, I grew up with all that, yeah. as most everybody did see these stages that are just you know incredible uh and you know get to look really behind the curtain and see what it's all about i mean it's i mean it's, you know from a kid from ohio it was super amazing experience absolutely you got to see you literally got to see how the magic happens yeah like all the fascinating things that go on behind the scene to make a lot of people a lot of people don't realize oh yeah here's a show it's like there's hundreds of hours of prep work and coordination and mm-hmm. just setting up the whole thing to make sure that when it is live, it goes as smooth as possible. Of course, as we know in life, in all parts of life, it's never as smooth as possible. Then how do you improvise and how do you make sure the show is still as successful as possible? Yeah. And I'll tell you the, the David Letterman show was by far uh, my favorite. I was a huge fan and, you know, I always thought like, Hey, you know, those guys get there like right before, you know, it starts shooting at, you know, 11 PM or 1130, whatever time zone. And, uh, and then they just do their hour and then they go and that's not the case. I mean, they're, they're like super early. Really? They start shooting at like 5 PM mm-hmm. and, uh, and he was just a really nice guy. The way he interacts with his, you know, his crew, he throws a football around yeah. joking, he's running through and rehearsing. I mean, these guys, I mean, it's, it's, it's a real deal. quite a job. It's the real deal for sure. That's awesome. He's one of my favorite I mean, he is some of those phenomenal interviews, especially some of his recent ones too. They're great. Uh-huh. I mean, yeah, yeah, still a fan. Yeah, fun, entertaining. Yeah. I mean, he just nails it every single time. Yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Then, what was it like? So, you also worked the during the live recordings. What were a couple? What's maybe some of the biggest challenges during that experience, or or fun stories, or interesting? Yeah, uh, I mean, quirks? I think as it um, you know applies to IT, it's it's uh, you know there, there's any kind of challenges. Think about it from a project standpoint in terms of what the requirements are. I had the opportunity to work on two movie soundtracks. Oh, wow. One was the Spawn movie soundtrack, where I actually got credit on. And then the Howard Stern Private Parts soundtrack, which I actually did more work on, but got uh, no credit on. Oh, that's awesome. I was going to say, talk about the pin. He he didn't invent, you know, radio personalities, but he was the pinnacle. I mean, he was the largest, especially, I mean, he was the only reason Sirius... Was all those companies combined? Right. I mean, it was him. That's what they were buying. I exactly. Mean. <laughs> and I wish I would have had that time to have more interaction with them. But it was, you know, the I thought the movie was great. And yeah. Be, you know, a contributor uh, to the soundtrack, even on a very sort of low level, was was just awesome. And I think it's what I was saying is just as part of like any project in terms of challenges, right? You know, your requirements are to you know make a song for a movie. Uh, yep. You have uh, engineers. You have producers. You have you know, equipment, you have the artist and, um, you know, you're, you're tracking, uh, to a goal and, and pretty much anything could happen. Like in, you know, most it situations yeah. you know, <laughs> uh, and that's where your prior planning and it all comes down to execution. So uh, come into play. what was it like working on a movie soundtrack? I know th- those are pieces of artwork in themselves. I mean, I still can't believe John Williams is still performing in his nineties. I mean, he's, Oh yeah. He's one of the most brilliant composers of our time. I think. Yeah. I I'll tell you, I have a lot of respect for folks that do a uh, film. A good friend of mine, uh, had scored scandal for the entire 12 seasons. Oh, wow. 
And, you know, it, it's when you talk about music, or at least my perspective, it's just like, you know, anything. I mean, the difference now than, you know, years and years ago when I was into it is there's just such good technology. I mean, folks oh, yeah. can put together a studio for, you know, a couple thousand dollars, yeah. where back then, you know, you're talking about like a half a million, quarter of a million, whatever yeah. dollars. So it's like out of reach. Um, but there's still a lot of uh, challenge with that because mm-hmm. when you're scoring, it's just like writing a song. Yeah. Right? But how you apply that to, um, you know, what's on the screen, right? And the time code and the syncopation between audio and video. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a there's a real art to it. And um, I think it's just a really exciting time. I mean, a lot of guys that I know that are still in that business, they pretty much work from home and they yeah. have their studio. You know they're they're using technologies that are real secure file transfer technologies, which, yep. as I'm we know, sure you guys <laughs> spent a lot of time doing that. And if you think about you know the uh, the IP associated with that, right, the intellectual property in itself, and not having those trade secrets or being able to intercept that information or dailies uh, in my consulting business, uh, I had a, one of the major cable networks was one of my um, clients. Mm-hmm. And they were trying to really wrestle with how do we maintain a level of compliance, hold our IP, and not have anybody intercept like you know daily uh, updates and yeah, of, you know video or audio or files or anything like that. So it's it was it's re- it's really exciting now. It's fascinating. It's fascinating how it's something a lot of people don't. I feel like they don't think about if they're watching a TV show or something. But one of the most important things is having the appropriate music that perfectly complements the scene to make it so much better oh yeah and if you're if you're into audio engineering or you kind of there's certain people once you see it you really appreciate it like mm-hmm. one of the best tv shows well, i guess it's on netflix but um was it tom ellis started in a show called uh, lucifer uh-huh yeah and that was one of the best combinations of soundtracks complementing the mood of the scene and really taking the show to the next level where you I don't know if there's a CD you can buy, but if there was a mixtape of that, I would buy it just for that. Yeah. Because all the mixes are just perfectly placed in the show. It complements the scenes. It really makes the emotions that much stronger. Yeah. And it's fascinating. Oh, yeah. It totally sets the, you know, the, the tone for the scene and the yeah. anticipation of what's going to happen next. And, um, you know, it, it's an art, uh, as we were saying. And, and I, I really enjoy that. Uh, I haven't worked in that area much, but... I've always had a lot of admiration for guys that can do it, do it well. Um, and Foley engineers, which are the guys that do sound effects and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that well-placed footstep or that, you know, slamming of the car door or any of that stuff. It's all intentional. It's all calculated. Yeah. yeah. And it, it, it's in more areas than you think, right? In terms of like any video game that you're going to play right now is going to be well-scored. Right, oh, it's yeah. not like you know having your Nintendo sixty four, yeah, you <laughs> your Super Mario Jam. I mean, you're gonna have you know quite a, quite a quite a soundtrack or a score uh, that goes along with the storyline. So it's it's super cool. It's fascinating to see how technology has advanced and complemented and just really made everyone's lives easier. I remember when COVID first hit, South Park Studios, um, they were working on, of course, a couple of episodes, mm-hmm. and they shut down the office. So there's a, I think it's a YouTube documentary or a mini, you know summary of the situation, but they basically, you know, ordered desktop PCs, monitors for every single employee. You know, they sent it all to the engineers out and then they all just continued to work using Zoom and then they were able to that 
or something like that, where the money is, you know, the intellectual property, they had to secure that data and make sure when they're yeah. sending updates to each other. Cause you know, it's not like back in the day where they're using cardboard cutouts. Now it's all animated. Yeah. So it's like, how do we secure the most valuable thing? This is our, you know, intellectual property in our show. Yeah. When we're doing edits and you don't want to have a leak. Cause of course the leak could, you know, it just, you know, ruins the whole thing. Yeah. I think, yeah. <laughs> I think if I had to look or consider silver linings as a result of COVID, I, I think when, you know, that was probably one of the greatest things, right? Oh yeah. For a variety of reasons. One, um, you know, the, the brick and mortar sort of operations that were challenged, right? Oh yeah. And I think just through innovation, you look at that. I think it also put a big light on security of Great. data and privacy, which is, you know, challenges that everybody grapples with, right? Whether right. they're challenged by a threat or bad actor or not i think just you know there's there's other attack services that that um you know uh, are, are being looked at now especially with the way that we work today i agree and then okay rossi going back to the origins of working in the data center what was your first uh, official role in it after the work at mtv my my first role so after i um elected to uh leave music production and uh and sort of embrace more of a real job uh i uh I re-educated myself in areas of uh, just tech, specifically with a focus on um, network engineering and mm -hmm. systems, and uh, had an opportunity uh, to interview at PeopleSoft mm -hmm. and get a little bit of history. PeopleSoft uh, founded in uh, 1987. This is around early 2000, um, Bay Area-based company, so mm -hmm. my career has predominantly been in Silicon Valley. Um, and PeopleSoft was acquired by Oracle, and Oracle, you know, it's an 800-pound gorilla. But yeah. um, I, I really had no idea what the interview process uh, would have been like from a tech company. And I went there just as a tour and was able to move that on to an interview. Did not do well in the interview process, so yeah. it was shot down. And that was great for me because I took six months to really polished those skills, not only interviewing, but the technical skills too. Oh yeah. And then came back and was hired. So, oh, that's awesome. Uh, you know, data center admin, yep. uh, in, and just squeaked in right before the, um, dot com bubble burst. Uh, and, uh, just had a, a really great start to my career and a really great career yeah. uh, at PeopleSoft. Absolutely. And then what inspired you to move to the manufacturer side when you went over to NetApp for a little bit? Cause that, that's a whole different, you know, you got the end user environment, the working in manufacturing is a whole different scenario. Yeah, totally. And um, I think that's kind of one of the benefits that uh, I really realized in working in the Silicon Valley. Uh, you know, PeopleSoft and being in 24 by 7 operations, it, you had the opportunity to really taste, touch, and feel not only the vital components within infrastructure relative to network, security, systems, uh, some business applications, but um, but it kind of really tees you up where it, the, the entire technology stack, instead of focusing on, you know, physical layer in the data center or like two and three, right. If you're talking yeah. about um, networks. Um, and so NetApp was further on in my career, probably uh, about seven, eight years into it after working for the likes of uh, Microsoft, Autodesk, a mm -hmm. um, few other companies in the Bay area as well. And to work for a provider that, you know, storage and uh, where, where it's hardware based, mm. uh, I was actually really surprised at um, that, you know, NetApp uh, was really a so more of a software company. I still believe they're pretty 
much more of a software company than a hardware company. Oh, that's what really makes you know the box it, itself work. I mean, oh, yeah. a lot of these systems are made um, you know with the same sort of components. Oh, yeah. you look at like you know, chassis and drives and stuff. So from a commodity yeah. standpoint. You know that that's you know I think they got that down to a science, but really when you put the feature set in there uh, and how it works, uh, you know that that's the real value proposition of a company like that. Oh, absolutely! I was going to say there's a lot of companies like Foxconn that makes a, a lot of things behind the scenes. I mean, a lot of them are using the same hard drives, same RAM. They may they may make them to a very specific spec for that company, but in the end, a lot of the big value is the people that support it as well as the software. And what was it like working on that? Because that, that was a global, you're handling data centers right now. All global company. Globe too. Yeah, I was responsible for um, global data center operations, which was comprised about uh, nine data centers um, throughout North America, APAC, so India, Hong Kong, and then we had a few in Europe as well. Oh, wow. And then I was also responsible for enterprise monitoring and automation. And that was like still... You know, not like it, you know, the tool sets were today, you know, it was kind of like, okay, how do we solve all these problems with like one tool? And that was really, at least my experience, my career where it was like, there's not a silver bullet. You really look at it like now you think about, you know, DevOps and what you're trying to solve for and CICD relative to, you know, cloud space and pipelines. And you're not going to do that now with like a Tivoli or an OpenView or anything like that. (laughs) So, um, you know, it was, it, was, it was really exciting, and especially when things are always on and the demands of that job. And, oh, yeah. you know, the role there is, you know, how do you, how do you continue to support a company that's growing 30% year over year oh, wow. and not run out of data center space, right? That's a challenge in and of itself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. And it's different because cloud was in its infancy then, yeah. and, you know, virtualization was a really big deal, and it was like, okay, you know, what kind of compression ratios can we get to maximize data center space yep. and then put in beefier bo- uh, boxes uh, to you know, handle that compute. And then it's like, oh, well, we still have the, you know, sort of the, what I phrase is the data center triangle, the, you know, space power and cooling aspects. Yep. And you don't want to make that triangle obtuse, right? So exactly. you know, solving one problem, you know, and uh, there's, there's always trade-offs. Of, you, you, of potential you, of others, right? Exactly. You fix one and you create two more problems. Like, well, shoot, we, we, we got to try fixing it a, qu- a little bit of a different way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We got rid of 60 servers into one, but yeah. well, now we have a hot spot in the data center. Exactly. <laughs> and you're using that much more power. It's like, well, we got balanced out. And then you got to cool it down. It's like, yeah, there's, there's, there's many more variables in life than people like to think they they see. Yep, <laughs> yep, for sure, for and, sure. And what was it like working with people all across the globe and have, having teammates in all those different countries? You know, I think having traveled previous, I've always been really fascinated by um, different cultures, uh, a variety from language to cuisine to um, just the cultural nuance. So, um, I, you know, the biggest challenge is always time, right? I mean, yeah. you know, nowadays anybody could work 24 hours a day, right? But, right. you know, you got to sleep, right? So, um, and it's really just the time based on time zones, right? Right. And how do you, how do you make yourself, uh, you know, extensible as an individual in present as a leader? And so, you know, working for a global company, I mean, God, that's pretty much been the bulk of my career. And it was just, uh, I think, just being really fortunate and like, hey, I could stagger my work time or, hey, I'm going to go work with them. And then, you know, when travel budgets aren't as squeezed to get out there and really have that interaction. Oh, yeah. And I think like right now, I mean, I've, I've been remote since 
2014. Oh, wow. And I can't imagine, you know, really going back into the office, especially yeah. with the power of collaboration tools now. I mean, oh, absolutely. It's so great. It makes life so much easier. And you get so much more productivity. I mean, they have, I think pre-COVID, the average person was spending, you know, 45 minutes to get to work, 45 minutes to get back from work. Yeah. And then you got, you know, gasoline, tolls, and then, you know, just stress. If you, who, who, I mean, no one dreams of being in bumper-to-bumper traffic. It's just, oh, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I, I, I think about it, you know, I, I would spend three hours a day in a car uh, oh, wow. living in San Francisco and commuting to the Silicon Valley. It's an hour and a half each way. Oh, wow. So, you know, I got 15 hours back in my life. Uh, a week, which is awesome. But there are some times where it's just like, I really miss listening to music and rocking oh, yeah. out, or like <laughs> listening to a podcast, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, but from a productivity standpoint, a quality of life, it's like, oh, God, I, you know, it's amazing. But oh, absolutely. You, but there's trade-offs, right? You oh, know, yeah. The, the independent time, as I was mentioning in the car, then the water cooler stuff, and then, the, oh, yeah. hey, Nick, you know, we just wrapped up. Let's go out for a beer, you know, and oh, kind yeah. of hanging out with that, you know, after work kind of thing, which is fun. You know, Absolutely. It's good team. That's probably one of the biggest struggles I see is companies trying to maintain a positive corporate culture and a team, you know, a nice collaborative team environment. It's a little bit hard to do when you guys are all remote and, you know, sometimes across the whole country. It's right. There's certain things you miss out on, especially I feel like for folks who are trying to get promoted. There is, I'm a little bit old school where I, I always tell people, you know, 105 hours a week can't be beat. I, I'm going to grind it out and make it happen. And there's a certain thing about seeing an employee or like, you know, a mid-level employee or somebody's trying to get promoted. Like if they're there before the boss and they're at the building after the boss, I mean, to me, that's just a good sign that they're hustling. Granted, they could be doing BS work. I mean, there's always the variables, but to me, that's a, that's an important sign. And I think it's kind of sends a message out. And of course the water cooler, a lot of people get promoted because, you know, they finish their task and they go to the boss and say, like, Hey, what else could I do to get promoted? You know, what other tasks are on your plate I could take off and, take off take off your plate and that's it's a little bit hard to do when you're remote yeah and there's a lot of value i think you know the water cooler outside of you know the the slack talk that that would you know tend to tend to promote you you, you just get a little bit more insight i mean i right. I, I liked being in the office i i like just getting up and going to somebody else's office knocking yeah. on the door hey how's it going hey got a question for you kind of yeah. thing and yeah, there's a lot of challenges. And I think just from a visibility standpoint, um, and I think what you're saying is just, you know, the recognition, right? The recognition yes. of, hey, this is a face. He's in this meeting or she's in this meeting. And, and uh, you know, fo folks kind of remember that a little bit more at times. And, uh, you know, I would say that there's a more of a cohesive aspect. But, you know, well-oiled machines, and that's the nirvana state for management to yep. get through that Tuckman's model and really get firing on all, um, you know, cylinders to get to that perform, you know, the performing side uh, of, you know, your team and, and their trajectory. Um, you know, it, it, it's still doable just the same, but I, I right. do kind of miss the human element and the interaction. Right? Yeah. It's a certain kind of culture. It's like the wiring hole moments are really, what, you know, you got the, you got your office family and people, people have been saying it for years. I mean, you spend so much time with them. You, you, right. you like them, you want to hang out with them. So I think, yeah, a lot of the companies I know we work with these days have kind of a class, I think they call it the hotel approach or mm -hmm. they have an office and, you know, if you want to, you can go there, you can work out there, but you don't have to. Yeah. So it's kind of like more of an open table environment. So mm -hmm. a little more, little more laid back. So the people who really do want that experience of, you know, seeing people every day or a couple of days a week, they can have that option. So I think 
I think that's a good approach. We kind of have that option for them to choose what's going to make them most efficient and happy with the role they're doing. It's huge. I mean, there's there's a significant benefit, and we're you know uh, on both sides from a company perspective. You reduce your reliance on um, you know brick and mortar. Uh, oh, a yeah. lot of overhead associated with that, right? Oh yeah. <laughs> um, and then from an employee perspective, it's just like, well, great. If I need to go into the office and I want to collaborate and whiteboard with somebody. I know that I can do it. So they still, their quality of life in, it increases. It was funny, I was talking to one of the guys on my team today. Uh, we had our one-on-one, and uh, I started really early in the morning. The company I work for now is European-based. Mm-hmm. And so I said, hey, man, I just need a couple of minutes to kind of refresh on my coffee. So we had this whole coffee conversation. Yeah. And he says, you know, he goes, I work from home. And he goes, and I kind of miss my Starbucks runs yeah. you know, <laughs> in the morning. It was just kind of a jam. And then it kind of went to, like, you know, well, he was telling me that it was like $50 a week or $200 extra a month on coffee. And you kind of oh, wow. spread that out over a year. I mean, you got like $2,500 opposed to what wow. he does now is he just goes to Amazon, buys a big pack of yep. you know, Starbucks and brews at home. And he says, and it's funny when you think about going into the office, he says, you know, you, you have your routine, which, you know, I was kind of mentioning, like I like listening to music or podcasts or news, radio are but like that was kind of his jam right just having that coffee and so when you think about being at home and he just bought a new car he's telling me too he says you know increase in car payment you think about like oh man when you're in the grind you got your coffee budget you got you know your your gas your maintenance and stuff like that it's like hey i want this car but it's going to change the payment by a couple hundred dollars a month it's like yeah i'd rather go for more the the more expensive car now because my coffee budget isn't what it is when i'm at home and so you know, there, there's good, I think, good positive trade-offs, uh, you know, across the board, both for employee and both for a company, right? I agree. But, you know, technology opportunities at the same time, which is, oh, yeah. you know, all what it's about, right? And employee enablement, um, you know, uh, and then you think about, like, the network technologies associated with that, which are just really exciting right now. Oh, it's fascinating. And it's, it's almost a little disappointing. We have gotten to the, the controller list network where, you know, if we have to do a deployment for network in France... There's no real reason I need to go over there and install it physically. You just ship the APs, they connect them, and they work. It's like, oh, I mean, yeah, yeah. That, would, that would have been a fun trip. <laughs> but, I mean, technology's made it. I know one of the biggest network rollouts in the U.S. a couple years back was a use case for Aruba Networks where they had uh, Starbucks. And, you know, they had all the Aruba Central in the cloud. And they didn't have to send a tech out. They just sent the APs to the stores. They told the store manager, hey, here's AP. All you need to do, plug into that outlet. For that Ethernet port in the ceiling, you're good. Just plug that cord in. Yeah, you're done. <laughs> yeah, yeah, calls home, self configures, and bam. Yeah, one of the, one of the largest network rollouts. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. And then, what was it like going from uh, working at NetApp, where you were managing your own data center, to moving to a data center company, where you were assisting in the sale of the data center space and that type yeah. of technology? Um, that was an amazing experience. I've always, I, I. I like to think that I have a pretty interesting perspective. I mean, uh, both on the IT stack and the physical plant. And a lot of that just came through, um, you know, when I worked in music production, you're not always working. So you invariably learn a trade or something that you can do temporarily until your next trade comes up. Yeah. Or excuse me, your next tour comes up. And um, I've never known anybody like in their technical career that said, hey, I'm going to be in data center operations. You generally like fall into it. Yeah, whether you're you know uh, manager of systems or you know uh, cable guy or you know whatever you kind of get your bearing and there's an opportunity and, and 
and kind of move into that space. And that's kind of how I moved into data center operations was just through promotion. And they said, hey, Tony, you have a little bit of background about um, the trades. You understand electrical systems. How about mechanicals? And I was like, what's mechanical? And they're like, ah, you're hired. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and that's how I grew it. And then when I had the opportunity, I managed data centers, a wholesale provider, now global, um, it was really, I was recruited based on that experience and understanding the physical plant and then the IT stack as well. Mm-hmm. And what was even better is uh, I had the experience from a customer of wholesale data centers. Mm-hmm. And now I had that opportunity to provide that service with the customer perspective. And I really, uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, it stretched me in a lot of different ways, um, not only from thinking about the technology side of the business, right, and, and running the business. Yeah. Uh, it was a small startup that's at that time, uh, but, you know, it grew very quickly, and, I, and um, so there was great technology challenges as well as, like, really getting to the construction side mm-hmm. of building a data center, which I really enjoyed, but I was able to apply a lot of my real estate knowledge in doing that, and so I ended up becoming the general manager for the portfolio, which represented about a half a billion dollars of private equity investment. Oh, wow. Uh, was responsible for lease administration, property management, the technical stack, and you know some other uh, functions within. Mm-hmm. And uh, just incredible, incredible experience. And that company has just shot off like a, like a rocket. So, And I think one, one of the greatest things that I learned was you, know, you focus, I've always been in operational roles, right? And I remember having a conversation with our CFO at Vantage Data Centers, and he said, Tony, you're a great ops guy. Mm-hmm. And he says, but in addition to turning on the lights, you're responsible for real property right now. And you have you know, quite an investment in property, in, excuse me, private equity. Mm-hmm. So your shift uh, needs to be from beyond just keeping the lights on, which is a mainstay, but how do you de-risk the investor, mm-hmm. right? How do you de-risk the investment? And so, you know, fast forward a little bit, not to jump ahead, but my current role um, at Zurich, as we mentioned at the top of this, you know, that's a insurance company, financial services, right? So they're very, very risk averse. And they've only, they, been, they've only been around for about 175 years? Yeah, 175 <laughs> years. So as you can imagine, thank God the tech stack's not that that old. But, yeah. you know, it's always like, how do you de-risk the business? Keep the lights on and then de-risk. And I even from an analogous to information security, it's all about risk. What's the threat assessment? What's the risk profile? How do you maintain continuity or operational continuity? And then you know, continuing to uh, just keep the lights on, keep the business running, and, mm-hmm. and uh, stay in front of threats and threat detection. Absolutely. It's all about mitigating risk, just mm-hmm. like whether it's outages or IT security, no matter right. how many walls or barriers you put up or how many redundant circuits you put up or how many redundant you know, electric providers you put in. I mean, how many redundancies there are or barriers there are, there, there's always a chance bad things will happen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, how do we decrease it enough so it's acceptable to management and the investors and everyone? And then, you know, when inevitably something happens, how do we respond to it? Because it's going to be a busy day when that happens. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and what was uh, kind, of the, kind of the couple first challenges when you first started joining the company? <clears throat> uh you know, I think it w- we're a really well-planned company. Uh, our CEO um, had a lot of experience in, in this space. So, 
he had a very clear vision. I think part of the challenge is always like time to market, right? Where, you know, it was a very compelling uh, proposition in terms of what Vantage Data Center offered then and still offers today. Mm-hmm. And then it's, um, you know, then you the, I would say the challenge is, is when things are going to be ready from a construction standpoint. That's mm-hmm. always kind of, you know, even if you think about it in your house, right? It's yeah. kind of think about the movie the money pit and it's like yeah two weeks everything was two weeks that really you know, <laughs> took a lot longer than you anticipated right so when oh, yeah. you have the trades there and you think about the technical stack uh, you know as it aligns it, it doesn't always uh, you know uh, align as, as well as you'd like it to so i would say you know challenges there are are just um you know getting uh, operating procedures in place mm-hmm. understanding what the construction schedule is going to look like having things ready getting through your data center permissioning and then really supporting the customer uh, move in, and then uh, really offering more of a value-added service that once they move in, you, and you're high five, and the job is not done, right? Job's just begun. We're really <laughs> continuing to manage not only just the relationship, but the services that they're they're essentially contracting for. Mm. Oh, absolutely. That's I mean, a lot of people think when the sale's complete, it's not really complete. That's that's when they really begin. Yeah, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. Oh yeah. That was a couple of challenges also when you're you know trying to sell that data center space and accommodating customers. Were there any very unusual circumstances? Yeah, um, you know, fortunately, I, I didn't. I I had I didn't have a, a sales facing role, mm-hmm. but like in companies like that, and you know, sales is always a part of what you do. At NetApp, sure. I was a part of customer briefings mm-hmm. where you know they would come in and they would executive briefing and I'd show them how we apply the technology in our own data centers. Mm-hmm. Same thing at Vantage data centers and other companies, right? I mean, everybody wants to uh, really show the effectiveness of their product and how they're drinking their own champagne, right? So, mm-hmm. you know, f- from Vantage, it's it's being in support of sales, doing customer tours, uh, supporting them and really interfacing and, and, and show with, with the prospective client on not only operational effectiveness, but really getting into, you know, the data center itself. When you think about the MEP stack or the mechanical, electrical, and plumbing stack and, you know, uh, how how this is a, a solid proposition mm-hmm. and how you're de-risked in terms of, uh, you know, coming in and being a part uh, of our customer base. I would say um, you asked me about, you know, the challenge or you know, special challenges that a customer would um, ask for. Um, density, you know, I mean, this is, I'm dating myself a little bit. So this is about 10, 12 years ago, uh, when I was with Vantage data centers. So, you know, density requirements, right. Uh, everybody wanted to go higher density and yep. you know, how do you cool that? How do you dissipate heat? Uh, and then, um, network pathways, right. Oh yeah. In a shared tenancy environment is a little bit challenging. A lot of customers and rightfully so they want to have pretty dedicated, you know, conduits for, yep. you know, their structured cable. Uh, they want to have a lot of security and meet new rooms and IDFs and MDFs, et cetera. So, um, you know, those are challenges, right? And I think we did a really good job at accommodating those challenges um, within reason. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's, that's tough at the provider level. Right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And then what inspired you to start your consulting company? Was that, was that right after? That or? was right after. And uh, I had a longtime um, uh, colleague of mine that we had, wor- we had worked in various companies uh, bef- 
for KeepUsoft Oracle and then NetApp. And uh, we both found ourselves like pursuing more uh, entrepreneurial sort of endeavors mm-hmm. and just connected. And he said, hey, what are you doing? And I said, hey, what are you doing? And I kind of we just kind of shared some stories of kind of where we're going. And he says, would you be interested in partnering up with me on this engagement? And that was super exciting because I had wanted to be in that space uh, for a really long time. Mm-hmm. One, again, just the entrepreneurial side of it. It's yeah. super exciting, right? Uh, and absolutely. then the other side of it is is similar to Vantage where I was a data center practitioner working for a provider mm-hmm. in the consulting area. I was the practitioner being a provider just the same, mm-hmm. but really servicing serving a customer base. And that was really the fundamentals that, you know, I believe that we built our consulting on was just that, the pra- the, the experience from a practitioner, applying their knowledge and, and helping one navigate through technical challenges and opposed to, and there's a lot of great firms, but, you know, it was really just our sort of experience in having bigger providers providing services putting awesome binders in front of us and and then high-fiving yeah felt that it was there was an opportunity for more um, boutique sort of white glove services Mm -hmm. and so that was that was a really exciting part i remember you telling me about your growth of that company because that's starting business is hard growing business is even harder i mean growing business is hard sustaining that growth is even uh, more difficult and so when we started uh, it was my business partner and I, and we were hoping to have enough billable hours to feed our family that year. Mm-hmm. And it turned into opportunistic, uh, opportunistically, it turned into a managed services engagement with one of our customers. Mm-hmm. And that took our numbers from two to 12, and then we layered on staffing services. And then in that next year, we went to like 50 employees. Oh, wow. Uh, you know, uh, in North America. And there's, there's still. North American company, uh, as I understand it today, there's probably they probably have some European clients by now. But I mean, just that kind of of, of uh, growth, right? It's huge. That scale challenges, uh, back in back office challenges in terms of payroll benefits, you know, oh, yeah. uh, uh, HR compliance. But you know, it's just super exciting at the end of the day when you could look at something that you've really touched and influenced, and then have a great team. Uh, and really do something that you're passionate about and believe in, uh, I, you know. Can't beat that feeling. Yeah. Yep. What was your favorite part or favorite um, part of that role? Because I know you probably, you know, starting business, you wear a lot of hats. You wear a lot of hats. <laughs> um, I, I think the kind of the, 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 the back office of the business side, like I yeah. really, really enjoy that. And I kind of straddled like front office, back office, and then delivery. And that's kind of the challenge. I was on an engagement for like 18 months. And when you're wow. on focusing on an engagement and you're wearing that many hats, you know, sales, you know, sort of uh, while still good, it, you always run the risk of stagnation. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. And then uh, one of the things that we put a lot of uh, thought into was we wanted to be very conservative on, I mean, we just had such tremendous growth to start. Mm-hmm. We didn't want to hire sales folks, you know, just wholesale because mm-hmm. we didn't want to run the risk of overselling and under delivering. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it was hard. I, it was hard for us at that time to find the sales folks that really kind of understood the tech stack, right? Right. That, that might even be a unicorn thinking 
back on it right oh, yeah. now. <laughs> but then, um, you know, was not just motivated uh, on the dollar on service. I mean, there's a oh, yeah. for-profit component to business. I mean, oh, everybody, free enterprise, I'm a big fan of all of that. Oh, yeah. But it, but I think for us, the reputation sake was yeah. way more important. We would rather have uh, moderate growth mm-hmm. uh, and be able to provide a, a value-added service and an abundance of growth and, you know. Well, I, I completely agree. I mean, yeah. you look at the most successful companies in history, I mean, they all have the customer first mentality where we're going to hire the people that are going to put the customer ahead of everything, do the right thing. And because they know long term, that's going to be that's where you're going to have the best growth and the best culture as well. Yeah. And I'll I'll tell you, that's um, those are the firms that I gravitate to most, not only from uh, somebody that I want to work for, what I aspire to establish um, in my entrepreneurial sort of endeavors but even now, being back in the enterprise, I would rather have the firm that is solid, has uh, the ability to execute innovation, and can say no. That's uh, a, oh yeah, which is you know that's a hard one. That's a hard one to kind of you know be able to navigate because on one hand you know it's sales and revenue right, and mm-hmm. looking for your next meal, but at the other end it goes back to the reputation namesake. Yeah. And uh, I have a vendor right now that I work with that um, it, it really reminds me they're much larger than than uh, than we were at, at Park mm-hmm. and my other consulting um, uh, ventures, but they are really good at saying no and telling you why. And yeah. their spirit is, uh, hey, we'd rather do a value-added service than to say, yeah, and then not serve you guys well. Yep. And um you know, just for the sale. And, and again, and I've said that that was one of the greatest lessons that I learned at park, especially uh, interfacing with the CIO that I ended up doing that 18 month engagement with. And he says, Hey, can you do a, a BCDR plan for mm-hmm. us? And I said, well, it's not really what we do. And I said, yeah. Yeah, I think you're going to be serviced best by another provider. And he said, yeah. what are you talking about? You're a <laughs> consultant. You say yes to everything. And I'm like, well, <laughs> not this consultant, <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I understand, you know, RTOs, RPOs, and can help you through, you know, a BIA. But, you know, at the end of the day, is it, you know, uh, an expertise in terms of our toolkit? Yep. You know, yep. you support that effort. But, you know, the, the driver's seat, you're probably going to be uh, better served by another firm. Oh, yeah. That was one of the most painful and difficult things when I first started uh, Time Technologies. I had a couple of clients where you get an at-bat, so you're spending a year, two years just to get that first meeting. Right. And then you meet with them, and they go, oh, yeah, you know, you know, here's our struggles. We have a certain, uh, we have a storage initiative. And at the time when I started the company, that was one area we had the least amount of experience with. So I would say, um, I'd love to help you long-term, but for this project, I don't really, I'm just going to tell you, you should probably work with this local company. I've known them for years. I'm at the time, I didn't have a referral program or anything or get, you know, a commission. I just said, you know what? Uh, you should use these guys. I know the sales rep. I know the engineer. They're good people. They're, their business focuses on storage. And long-term, that helped me build a better relationship with that customer. And we've, we've done a lot more since then, I'm proud to say. But, yeah. yeah, it's just so hard to be like, no, we can't do it. But you got to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And just it pays off in long-term for your brand. And it's just the right thing to do for the customer and the client. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you kind of mentioned my my experience in music production. I've been fortunate enough to like, you know, be a fly in the wall when I've seen some really great producers in the room. And I I remember there was one point at Park Consulting where you're thinking about 
what your core competency is. And we went mm-hmm. through a branding exercise and like, this is core service value. And this is more, uh, we had this uh, uh, suggestion at NetApp more than a suggestion. It was a kind of a mantra that we lived by and core services and contextual services. Mm-hmm. And we looked at that on, from an IT technical or excuse me, a technology perspective mm-hmm. and then where we had individuals, right? So yeah. they made sourcing decisions, right? In-source, outsource, right source mm-hmm. based upon core service value that we provided the business. And so going through that exercise, you know, at NetApp kind of really um, served me, you know, throughout my career. And, and so whereas going back to the music production aspect, I realized that, you have a producer that will produce a record. Name any producer, oh, yeah. right? Like, take Rick Rubin for example. Brilliant producer. Can he play every instrument? Well, he probably could, but yeah. probably not, right? Yeah. But does he know how to maximize the performance of all the artists that are in that room to get the desired outcome? Mm-hmm. And that's kind of how I look at it. Even in my leadership roles now, it's like you know, there's a real producer aspect of it, right? You're producing a service. You're and your team is really the artist that you're executing. And I don't know how to do everything that that team does, and mm-hmm. even as it pertains to consulting. You know, you don't need to know every facet of the business. Oh, yeah. You can grow it reasonably at, you know, with, with the right knowledge of, of hiring people that are not only smarter than you, but knowing when to raise your hand and say, hey, I need a little help too. Oh, absolutely. That's, that's one of the biggest keys to success is you always surround yourself with people smarter than you. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, I always tell people like, I will never be the smartest person in the world, but God dang it, I won't be out work. So I always <laughs> tell people I'll work really hard. Then I'll introduce you to smart people. <laughs> yeah, There you go. There you go. Oh, fair enough. And, and then how did you first get the job at Zurich? And what were a couple of the uh, first challenges or highlights that when you first joined? <clears throat> so Zurich, um, boy, I mean, I really got lucky at Zurich. I mean, quite honestly, I, I've known about Zurich for uh, a real long time, mm. uh, and just recognize them uh, as a brand, especially with the time that I've spent in Europe. Mm. And um, they, I was transitioning from a company that was acquired, and um, they were really just kind of reorganizing, and then top level leadership, mm. um, you know, they're they're tightening their belt. So I saw an opportunity at Zurich, and I was like, oh. I got to apply. Yeah. Never thinking that I would really oh, yeah. hear back from them. And uh, and we went through the interview process real quick. I, I think I was fortunate enough to where there was a couple of active conversations. They really liked my background experience and, you know, the data center side, connectivity side, understanding, you know, especially on the carrier build-in side and how connectivity works and then the cloud consulting that I did uh, through my own uh, consultancy practices. And it was just... It, was just a really good fit all, all the way around. So, uh, yeah, I think I'm about 15 months in oh, yeah. uh, to my current role. So not quite a newbie, but not quite the tenure that, that some have there. Um, but, yeah, I just I feel really fortunate to have landed there. That's awesome. It's astonishing how many people, I guess, is, is it quote-unquote newer brand for America, but it's one of the, one of the most tenured companies in existence. It's yeah. 175 years, that's that's a lot of heritage. That's a lot of stability too. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And then, what do you like to do outside of the office? Uh, you know, a variety of things. I mean, I enjoy cooking a whole yeah. lot. Uh, so you know, that's super fun. Um, and then uh, I haven't really gotten back to it as I was pre-COVID, but uh, road cycling. Oh, really? Uh, so yeah, I, I you know love the sort of. Uh, 
cycling. It's a little challenging here in Texas. You don't quite have the climbs and the yeah. big views and payoffs as you do in, Not in at the all. Bay Area, <laughs> but um, you can definitely get out there and work nonetheless. And the challenge is 100 degrees and pedaling really hard. So. Oh, yeah. But, uh, what, what but kind yeah. Of bike, or what, what kind of bike do you like? Uh, you know, it kind of varies. Right now, I have a, uh, a Ridley, which uh, Ridley is a Belgian uh, oh, nice. bicycle company. And then I have a custom Franco, and they're based in the U.S. and uh, just outside of Los Angeles. And so, um, you know, I got a couple of nice bikes that, uh, that I've traveled with. And when I've had the opportunity to cycle in France or oh, really? Italy and... Uh, there's a group that uh, I'm still pretty active with uh, called Mission Cycling, and uh, they would um, organize uh, you know great European cycling trips. And really, it's just a bunch bunch of forty something year old guys with really nothing to prove, and and you ride these amazing areas, and then you drink wine all night and get up and do it all over again. So uh, yeah, it's super fun. And then I, I also aw- like that sounds big awesome. Fan. What, what, what was it like cycling in France? Or, what, I mean, oh, that just man. sounds picture perfect. I mean, if you're going to cycle somewhere. It's it's incredible. I mean, um, I, I spent time in the Alps. So oh, really? think about like flying into like Geneva, Switzerland, yeah. and then you know going the two and a half or so miles down in Alps. I mean, you're really close to the Italian border. But like being a fan of cycling and watching the Tour de France and then like going in, in – doing these rides and yeah. doing some of these climbs like Galibier and Alpe d'Huez and stuff like that. It's like whole different appreciation. Also demoralizing too, because I'll take Alpe d'Huez will probably take me about an hour and a half to climb it. Yeah. And there's like 20 some switchbacks, you know, along the way and oh, the wow. pro cyclists will do it in half hour. And it's oh jeez, <laughs> <laughs> It's a great, it's a great workout. When COVID first hit, I started it cause I shut down the gym mm-hmm. at the apartment. So I dust off my, my dad has an old uh, seafoam green vintage Bianchi. Oh, wow. And, oh, I love that thing. So, I, you know, threw in some new tubes, popped out the tires. and yep. Marco Pantani was, rode uh, oh, yeah? Bianchi's. And that, he was the one that, uh, you know, used to crush it up Galibier. Yeah. That climb's amazing. They're it's beautiful gorgeous. pieces there's of machinery. There's on the top. And, yeah. Uh, there's a little place to grab an actual Galibier beer. Oh, really? There, so there's a lot of payoff, the view and then. Suds. Oh, that's awesome! I, I might have to join you on one of these trips. That sounds like that sounds like an incredible oh, once in a lifetime experience. Yeah, so great! It's so great, and I'm a big fan of two wheels. So uh, I've probably spent spending more time on the motorized ones than the than the manual powered ones. Oh, really? Yeah. What kinds your favorite? What kinds do you have? You know, I uh, I kind of dove back into it uh, pretty hard. So right now I have five motorcycles. Oh wow! Um. And they vary. I have a, a pretty full-dressed Harley Cruiser to uh, a Royal Enfield Cafe Racer. Oh, cool. um, I have a couple of vintage Italian bikes. And then I have um, uh, a Kawasaki Police 1000, which is, oh, like, really? I think, about chips. I have one of those, and it's super cool. Oh, and, that's awesome. uh, I'm out of my league even owning that bike because it's yeah. the scariest bike I have, but... It has lights and sirens, and yeah. uh, uh, it was heavily modified with a, um, uh, a headlight from a 1934 Hudson, so it's, oh, it's really? pretty cool. How do you find that? Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, I found it on Cycle Trader, which uh, um, was was a great find, but uh, 
you know, probably not the best investment made, yeah. uh, you know, considering what I have into it. But I, I just, I think it's just such a cool bike and it was so unique. And, and so, um, it's, it's cool. It's, I, it's hard to think of a bike that looks better in green than a Kawasaki too. That was one of the first yeah. motorcycles I ever got to uh, ride on. It was a uh-huh. green, green Kawasaki. Yep. The one of the entry level ninjas. I mean, Oh yeah. 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 I, <laughs> I love, uh, the Kawasaki green, but this one is, you know, because it was a police bike, it's black and white, so it's just oh yeah, yeah, all all police badged out. And then how, how did you get that vintage headlight on it too? Is did it come like that, or is that something you sourced, or what, what was that like? To no, it? I uh, the guy who did the sort of I'll call it lightly call it a resto mod on it, um, put it all on there. So he uh, cool. really kind of went to town on this bike and um, pulled the rear swing arm off and put like an updated you know. Uh, ZX14 rear end on it, and then uh, same with the front end, new forks from that, and like dual brakes and you know uh, dual rotor braking and oh, everything nice. like that. And so um, he just said he just kind of went to town on it and kind of tried to make like a real classic style bike and had this headlight and just I mean it, I can't even describe uh, you know sort of the thought and artistic touch that he put onto that. Yeah. So it's it's. It's a like I said, I'll lightly term it as a resto mod, but you know, it's just a super great combination of an older police bike with even older parts with you know updated you know systems. I mean, it's kind of I mean that's at the point where it's a piece of art. I mean that that's <laughs> really cool. Yeah, it's fun. It's yeah. fun. What are your thoughts on Harley going electric? Oh, they, man. They, they claim they're going for it. <laughs> I love uh, electric powered vehicles. I yeah. think they're so cool. Um, I debate on it. Like I have ridden the live wire. Oh, really? And, uh, that was their subsidiary for a while. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, now I think they spun it off. Yeah, they did. Company. Yeah. And so, um, it's probably the fastest bike I've ever ridden. Oh yeah. (laughs) But it's, but it's also, you know, you let go of the gas and it just slows down. So it's super torquey and. I, I don't think even on the test ride I, I did, I, I used the brakes. So oh, it's really? Super, yeah, it's super fun. But I wrestle with it because, you know, I love, uh, you know, sort of the uh, internal combustion engine and the oh, yeah. V-twins. That's why I like the Italian bikes. That's mm-hmm. why I like Harley-Davidson's um, is just the rumble of that. So I think, oh, yeah. it'll be, I think it'll be real interesting. But there's really cool things coming out. Especially with their new C- CEO, he's German. Yeah, he's I know. I think really pushing not only the technology side of Harley Davidson's, like mine even has Apple CarPlay. Oh, really? Um, yeah, but you know, he's pushing the technology side. He's pushing comfort, and he's pushing like a market that um, I think is is uh, you know ripe for uh, for the innovation that's that's really coming out of Harley. Oh, absolutely. It'll be interesting because, I mean, a lot of those companies, they trademark and they, they put the actual sound of the exhaust in the engine because, I mean, that's such an iconic piece of the company's history and the experience, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's that's the my perspective as a consumer, but I can't imagine that they would ever make, like, a street glide or a fat boy or anything like that electric. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, don't mean, you, I, I don't know how you could. I mean, you, of course, you always could, but I don't know how that would work. It'd be so... It'd be very bizarre. It'll be interesting to see if they try to attempt it or what do they do in that regard. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show, Tony. I really oh, appreciate it, man. Nick, I great time. appreciate it. Thank you very much so for much. having me. Appreciate it. I'll do it again soon. Yeah. Thank you so great. much for listening. Don't forget Topping Talks is also on YouTube, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. 
Don't forget also to like, subscribe, comment, tell your friends, tell your family, tell your coworkers, tell your enemies. Heck, tell anyone. Just say, stay safe. Have a great day. Topping Talks.